Okay, so I want to give you a bit of a background, a little history lesson to understand what's happening. And it actually carries over into the news today, all right? So 2 Timothy, 2 Peter, and Jude were written all about the same time, all right? A.D. 64 to 67 in there, okay? And 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, somewhere kind of close to that, all right? And then we finished with Revelation, somewhere about 90 A.D., all right? So this is what's going on when Paul is writing, Peter's writing, Jude is writing, and John is writing. At this particular time, Nero is the emperor of Rome. It is chaotic. And Nero goes on the warpath, if you will, after the Christians. The persecution of Christians is growing. It's even said in church history that Nero, in his hatred for Christians, would actually dip believers in pitch and line the pathways of his garden with them and light them on fire so he could ride his chariot through his garden at night. He was brutal. He was violent. In AD 69, it's the year of the four kings. During the time that Paul and Peter, Jude, are writing these things, civil war is on the verge of breaking out in Rome. And in 8069, it has gone into full-blown civil war. And within the course of one year, there are four emperors of Rome. That's how messed up it was and how unstable it was. In AD 69, Vespasian comes out on top. Brutal man. Vespasian hated Christians. He hated Jews. Under Vespasian's reign, his son Titus sacked Jerusalem in AD 70, destroyed the temple, okay? And then a little bit later on, Emperor Hadrian just intensified the hostility to Christians and to the Jews even more so. Now, the Emperor Hadrian is noted for this. In an attempt to obliterate any thought of Jews and Israel on the world stage, he renamed Israel to Philistia, or Palestine as we know it today. This is where this comes from, okay? In AD 138, Hadrian named it after the Philistines who were residing in the area of the Gaza Strip, okay? They were not native to that territory. They came from the area of Phoenicia and, and that area of Greece, okay? So they had traveled there long, long before. They had settled in the area of Gaza. They were sea people. And then in about 6 BC, any trace of them were completely gone. By that time, Rome was controlling the empire, uh, controlling the region and all of that. And there just weren't Philistines around anymore, Philistine culture or anything. But to obliterate any historical ties of Israel to the land, Hadrian renamed the area Palestine. Okay? And so... Later on in history, the people who were in that area, okay, after Hadrian and, and Vespasian had removed the Jews out of that area, they adopted the name of Palestinians, okay? So that's how that comes to be. And so right now today in the news, we are seeing this battle between people who have a historical possession of the land and then a group of people who adopted an identity and a name much later, okay? But that'll give you some idea of that tension that's there and where the uh, Palestinian name came from and Palestine came from. It came back from all the way going back into this time period of 
warring against the Christians and the Jews, all right? So with that being said, going into these books, these letters, not only is it a serious time politically and spiritually, but understand that Paul is about to be martyred for the name of Christ. Peter is about to be martyred for the name of Christ. And the church is going into a dark, dark time of persecution. And so as we look at these things, as the church is encouraged to stand in a dark and unstable and ungodly time, it is encouragement for us to follow in their steps and to hold fast to the word of God. Okay, so I'm going to just go through these different letters and just show the key elements of what are being addressed, all right, and how they apply to us today. So 2 Timothy is written by Paul, and he's writing to Timothy, the young pastor of the church of Ephesus. So we know persecution is on the rise. That's a stressor for the church and for Timothy. There are those within the church who look down on Timothy because of his youth, and that's a stressor for him. And then on top of that, there are those coming into the church bringing false doctrine, causing discouragement and uh, derailing the church a little bit. That's another issue that Timothy is facing. And so Paul is going to give him encouragement and direction and leading the flock of God during this time. And this is something that every pastor should take to heart. But also, us as believers need to take it to heart too. But it's going to be focusing on his position as the pastor of Ephesus. All right? So chapter 1, 2 Timothy, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as, I did, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells within you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, self-discipline. Some translations say a sound mind. Timothy, I know you've been crying. I know you're hurting. I know it's tough. But I know your faith. I saw it in your grandma. I saw it in your mom. I saw it in you. Don't be discouraged. Hang in there. Trust the Lord. God gave you a gift. And he will keep you going. And he's going to say that later on. Okay? Don't be afraid. God's giving you a spirit of power and love and self-control. The church today can be very sheepish and cowardice. We live in a time where if you buck the system, if you are not politically correct, you run the risk of being vilified, okay? And nobody wants to be vilified. Nobody wants to be labeled as homophobic or judgmental or bigoted. Or, we don't want that. And so we shy away from things out of fear. But you know what? We don't need to be shying away from things. We stand upon the word of God, okay? What we say should be the things that God says. Not our opinion, not what we think, but what the Lord says. And we're going to see how to do that later as we look at the book of Jude, all right? So, He's encouraging this young man, take courage during this time. And in this encouragement, he wants him to guard the word of God, guard the gospel. Going down to verse 12, 
This is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. He's told him not to be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord. And he says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. This is key. When you know somebody well, I think we'll stand up for them. We're not going to be ashamed to be labeled with them, okay, associated with them. But if we don't really know Christ personally or intimately, when the pressure comes on, our confidence is not as strong as it could be because we just don't know him very well. So our confidence and courage is rooted in the relationship with our Savior, okay? Paul says, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's the message of the gospel. I know God can take care of this and protect it as I'm here. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, the Holy Spirit is in us and he'll give you what it takes to guard what he's entrusted to you. The precious word of God. All right. He carries on, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see how it's Jesus giving us grace? Jesus giving us courage? The Holy Spirit working in us? We're not doing it on our own strength. We're relying on the one who loves us, okay? So, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So he's encouraging to be focused. Seek to please your commander and entrust this treasure, the word of God and the gospel of Jesus to faithful men who are going to take God's word and faithfully instruct people and lead them in a deeper relationship with Christ. It's imperative that faithful people take the word of God and disseminate it accurately. This is what Paul goes on to talk about. Chapter 2, verse 14 Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handing, handling the word of truth. And then he goes on to say, but avoid ir uh, irreverent babble and just idle talk and junk okay but you need to be a worker a diligent worker rightly dividing the word of God that means you got to get in and study it you got to understand it you've got to grasp it and then you have to take it in a manner where you can give it out to people to where they can take it and grab a hold of it and the way I like to term it is put it in their pocket, take it home and use it. Okay, some people say take it and put all the cookies down on the bottom shelf where everybody can get to them. Okay, this is the responsibility of the pastor. And, you know, I've had people ask me, you know, what do you do all week when, when I was in full-time ministry? A good pastor if they're working hard in the word of God, I was taught you're going to spend probably about 12 hours in study to prepare for one message. 12 hours of labor 
for about 45 minutes of message. That's a good workman, okay? That was what was ingrained in me when I was taught by my mentors, my pastors, great men of God who knew how to handle the word of God. And so a pastor needs to be in the word and discern the word, handle the word in a way where he can give the word to the people so that they can use it and understand it, okay? And then part of this is also correction. Going down to verse 24 and what a pastor should be doing. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil toward themselves, okay, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. A lot of people are caught up in a lot of doctrines that they just didn't know any better. They had bad teachers. They had false teachers come in and give them bad doctrine. And they just don't know. They just don't know. So you don't want to come at them and steamroll them and be abusive. But you need to be gentle. And hopefully the Lord will work on their hearts and bring them out of that bondage that they're in. And then in chapter 3, he talks about the attitude of the last days. And this is today, all right? Chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness but deny its power. Avoid such people. This is today. This is our world today. It's messed up. It's lost. It's falling apart. And as we stand in this time, we will be persecuted. Going down to verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's because we're going against the flow. We're not in sync with the world. We don't want to be in sync with the world. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And he brings it back to anchoring in the word of God. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. That word breathed out means inspired by God. Peter will address this too. And profitable for teaching what is right, okay? For reproof when we're not right, for correction, how to get right, and training in righteousness, how to stay right, okay? All scripture, every bit of it, Genesis to Revelation, every bit of scripture is profitable to teach us Reprove us, correct us, and help us stay on track. That's why we need the whole word of God, okay? That a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we're going to be completely equipped for godly living, and we'll see this in John, we've got to know the book. We've got to walk it with the help of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here's a charge to preach the word again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, 
Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The word truth we are going to see over and over and over again in Peter, in Jude, in John. Okay? The truth. We live in a time where people say truth is relative. There are no absolute truths. You have your truth, I have my truth. That is not only not biblical, but it's not logical. Okay? But people don't want sound doctrine. We live in a time where people live by what they feel. And what they feel is what is real to them. Okay? That's a very difficult place to be. A difficult thing to deal with. When the response is, well, that's your truth. It's true or it's not. There's no middle ground. Okay? But that's not the way our society thinks. And then Paul says this, as he's wrapping up this letter to the young pastor. In verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. He's telling the young Timothy, his child in the faith, I'm coming to the finish line. And the last words that people say carry a lot of weight usually because they want to make sure that the most important things are said before they go. Which adds a lot of weight to what's being said to Timothy. But it adds a lot of weight because it's God speaking to us. Okay? We need to be courageous in this time that we live in. We need to know the word and we need to know our Savior. A time is coming where the church will be sifted. And those who ride the fence and are just cultural Christians go to church and that's their religion, they will be shaken. Those who are committed to Christ, sold out to Christ, they will stand. Persecution sifts the church. I've seen it in the Soviet Union. We see it in China, North Korea, all over the world. Go out to Voice of the Martyrs website. When the fires of persecution get hotter, it really identifies who the believers are. We need to be grounded in Christ and the Word. Okay? We have to be. And we have no reason to be afraid of this world. Because our Savior will keep us and strengthen us. And we can shine brightly as lights in a dark world. Peter picks this up. 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 3. He's talking about what we have in Christ. Okay? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Everything we need for life now and for eternity and godliness, godly living is in the knowledge of Jesus Christ in knowing him. Okay, and he has given us power and promises and through those, by receiving Christ as our Savior, we are partakers of the divine nature. The very Holy Spirit of God indwells the believer. As the scriptures say, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. When we were looking at the Old Testament, we saw men and women who held fast to the Lord stand in the midst of dark and tumultuous times. Sometimes they gave their lives for the sake of the Lord. But you know what? If we lose this life, we still live. This is, I, I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about life. And Wrapping up the last battle, okay, the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia. And what happened, well, uh, spoiler alert, okay. Let, I, I, won't, I won't spoil it, okay. I'm going to jump to the statement, all right. The statement that Lewis makes is, this is not the end of the story, but this is the first page of the first chapter of a story that will go on forever and ever. This life that we're living is just the beginning. It ain't over when this is over. That's just flipping the page, okay? That's all it is. And we can stand fast in what Christ has done for us. And so he goes on, Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Other versions say add to it, okay? And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we get saved, that's not the end of it, okay? That's the start. It's like when you get married and you do your wedding vows. That doesn't mean, okay, it's all done and we've hit the finish line. No, you just hit the starting line. And now you've got this life ahead of you. Okay, and so when we have Christ, that's the beginning. And we add to this life. We build upon it in Christ with the power of Christ, the help of Christ, holding fast to the word of God, and we grow. A lot of times people think, oh, I'm saved, now I'm done. No, now you're beginning. And so we build upon that foundation of Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We build upon Christ. Not that we're adding to what Christ has done or earning salvation. Don't think that. It's just, okay, there's a relationship and a life to be built upon the foundation of Christ. And in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Okay? The word there for confirm is a deed or a warranty. All right? It's not that we're earning salvation. Okay? When we are growing in our walk with the Lord and we're building upon the foundation of Christ with his help. Okay? And Jesus tells us this. You know, remember the 
the parable of the man who built his house upon the sand and who built his house upon the rock, okay? Think of it that way. When you build upon the rock of Christ, you'll stand, all right? And this confirmation is just an evidence of the fact that you are saved, okay? If a person says, you know, and Dan talked about that this morning. A person says, I'm a Christian, but the evidence does not substantiate what you're declaring. You better think this out, okay? And that's what Peter's saying. It's like, look, if, if you're adding and you're building upon Christ and you're growing in your relationship with Christ, that's confirming your confession, it's giving evidence to what you're claiming to be. That's encouraging. Okay, and we're going to see how John deals with this in a little bit. All right? And then here in verse 14, Peter talks of his death. He says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me, he knows his time is short. He's giving his heart in this letter to the saints. And now he's pushing it to the word and encouraging us to hold to the scriptures. Verse 16, and this is going to be reiterated by John. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, then no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul has just told us in 2 Timothy. The word of God is inspired by God. Okay? And what Peter's encouraging with is like, gang, this is not mythology. This is not made up ideology. We were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. We heard the Father declare Jesus to be his beloved Son. We saw what happened. This is history, not mythology. This is what separates Christianity from everything else. Jesus went to the cross or he didn't. History or not. Jesus rose from the grave three days later or he didn't. It's historical or it's not. This is not opinion. It's not speculation. It's not myth. It happened or it didn't. If it didn't, like Paul says, we of all people are to be most pitied because we're just believing a lie. This is where the line's drawn. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so Peter's saying, gang, we were there. All right? And he's just said, I'm getting ready to die for the very things that I'm telling you. I'm ready to put my life on the line for what I have seen and experienced and what I'm teaching you. Okay? That's heavy. But in this, false teachers are coming. Okay? But false prophets also arose among them. This is chapter 2, verse 1. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they're coming. Verse 4. For God did not, and he's encouraging them here now, okay? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, 
when, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, <coughs> pardon me, he condemned, to them, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. He's encouraging. Now, I look at this and I say, righteous man, Lot, I don't see that. Fortunately, God sees people the way I don't, okay? He sees me the way I don't see me. What we're told here is deep down, Lot had a heart for the things of God, okay? Nevertheless, God is able to keep those who follow him in the midst of tribulation and trial, all right? This is why, and we'll get into this in Revelation, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, okay? And I've said it before, I used to be a mid and a post-tribber, okay? But the Bible changed my, my opinion, all right? And I'll tell you why later. But we see with the flood, when God judges the world, he takes Noah and the family out. When God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, he takes Lot and his daughters out. When God judges the world in the last days, during the tribulation, the body of Christ will be gone. We won't be here for that. Because he is punishing the world. He is trying the world. We face tribulation, but it does not come from God, it comes from man. That's very different. Jesus promised that to us. In this world, you will have tribulation. Paul just talked about it, you know, when he's talking to Timothy. You're living for righteousness, you're going to be persecuted. There it is. But he's encouraging the people, God will get you through this. Chapter 3. Verse 1, telling us to remember scripture, prophecy, and be ready for the coming of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up to a sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until that day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And I want you to get this, all right? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, okay? We will come back to this as John talks about it, okay? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? God is not slow all right he's wanting people to come to him and then that day of the lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away and burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth which, in which righteousness dwells. Okay? And he's saying, look, the Lord's coming back. And we need to live in a way that's ready for his return. Here's the thing. People have been saying Jesus is coming back for a long time. The job that I have now, every day that I am on the phones, I am notified of deaths. And I help people deal with death benefits. Last week I had one, the guy's younger than me. His son calls me. I need help. We may not make it to the second coming of Christ. I could die right now of a heart attack right here in front of you. Am I ready to see Jesus face to face? John will talk about this. Because when you cross that line, there ain't no going back. What's done is done. Am I ready to see my Savior? How much treasure have I laid up in heaven? What foundation has I, have I built upon? My own righteousness or the righteousness of Christ? What am I storing up? Wood, hay, and stubble? Or gold and precious stones? Things that will last for eternity. We have to live for eternity. We live in the moment here, but with an eye and a mind for eternity. Okay? And then he goes on and talks about, you know, follow what Paul teaches. And he says, Paul's teachings are scripture. And he leaves with that. Now, go over to 1 John. We're going to pick this up again as far as the facts of who Jesus is. John 1.1 That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John starts out right out of the gate. I saw this. We saw this. We saw Jesus. We spent time with Jesus. We touched Jesus. We heard Jesus. We know what happened to him. John and Peter ran to the tomb. And they're like, he's not here. You know, but they didn't know what to make of it. And they didn't believe at first. But then Jesus came in amongst them and Jesus had breakfast with them and Jesus spent 40 days with them after his resurrection and so on and so forth. And so he starts out, gang, this is reality. This is history, not mythology. John, he was, history says he was boiled in oil for the sake of the gospel, but he didn't die. So he was exiled to Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. But he put his life on the line, not for what he believed, but for what he knew to be factual. Okay? There are a lot of people who die for what they believe. How many people die for what they know? And when we have a knowledge of Jesus Christ in our life and a personal relationship, that carries so much weight. And so 
these are facts. And he says, we told these things to you so that you might have fellowship with us. The way this is worded in the Greek is basically John is saying, you weren't there. So through my eyes and through my experience, I'm going to bring you in so that you can enjoy that experience through my eyes and my life. I want you to partake in this experience with me. And together we will have fellowship with Christ Jesus, a relationship with him. That's what he's talking about. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That means regularly, habitually, okay? We all fall down. But if anyone does sin, see, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Listen to this. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, those who believe, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Okay? John is going to anchor in, how do I know if I'm saved? Well, are you obeying Jesus? Have you believed on him? Are you doing what he teaches in his word? If you are, that's a really good indicator. If you're not, you need to rethink things, okay? So this is how we know if we keep his commandments. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you will, you will keep my commandments. That's that expression of love to him by obedience, all right? And fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit to have help to do that. Now, going over to chapter 2, Verse 18, he begins to talk about antichrists. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for as if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Okay, and then going back down, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. There were people within the church itself who were teaching false doctrines, and they went out from the church, bearing the name of the church, professing to be followers of the church and of Christ, but not following the Father and the Son. Okay, deceivers, and today there is so much false doctrine. So much garbage that has infiltrated the church. And it all boils down to denying Christ. Okay? And then in verse 28, Now little children, abide in him, Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Walk with Christ. So that when he does come, there isn't this feeling of shame of, boy, I didn't do, I didn't, I did not walk the walk. But that when he comes, we can have confidence. Okay, we're not perfect. But if we look at our lives, I look at my life, are there things in my life that if Jesus were right here with me, I would be embarrassed for my behavior and conduct? Oh, guess what? Jesus is right here. And he's right here in my heart. Oh, wow. And when I see him face to face, I don't want to be embarrassed. In awe, wonder, reverence, yeah. But like Paul says, I want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. That's what I want to hear. And then verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's that mindset. Jesus is coming back. We're going to see him. Live with that mindset. Purify yourself. Walk in the things of God. Going down to chapter 4, verse 1. And John's been talking about love. How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm following the Lord? One of the things is love, okay? Love for the Father, love for the Son, love for each other. And it's not just emotion that's part of it, but it's one of heart and service and action, okay? And John talks about, you say you love the Father, but you hate your brother in the Lord? We, we got a disconnect here, okay? You better rethink this. Because if you hate your brother, and you say you love God, you're hating your father's child. We've got a problem. The walk and the talk have to match. And he wraps up with this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Okay? We need to test everything. We're going to do that in just a second. Okay? Because I think it's vital to this, how do I know if I'm saved? All right? Everyone who believes, chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay? Confidence. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, your brothers and sisters in Christ. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Go down to verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. These are dark times that they're in. How do I know if I'm saved? Everything that we've got here in 1 John tells us how we know. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked from him. There's that relationship where we can ask of the Father according to his will, and he will give those things as we pursue our relationship with him. But remember that John says, test all things, hold fast to that which is true. All right? How do I know if I'm saved? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins and by putting your faith in what he did on that cross, you have eternal life through him and he rose from the dead physically on the third day as proof that the payment for your sin has been paid for. If you believe in Christ and you entrust your life to Christ, you're saved. That is evidenced by love for him, wanting to obey him, wanting to follow him, and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is evidenced and confirmed by growing in your walk with the Lord and by obeying the Lord. Okay? Well, I'm doing that, but how do I know if I'm saved? And I bring this up and this may step on some toes, okay? But I'm willing to do that. Because it's so prevalent in this part of the country. Calvinism. God chooses who he saves and chooses who goes to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay? Is If we're going to test all things, let's test that because there are a lot of great godly men and women who are vexed internally, wondering if they're going to go to hell and they don't have a choice in the matter, even though they go to church faithfully and they read the word and they serve the Lord and they pray and they're so passionate about him. They're scared to death 
that they're going to go to hell because God chose that they're going to go to hell. Well, let's just test it, okay? All right, let's see what Jesus says, John 3, 16. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him and trusts themselves to him will not perish but have eternal life, right? Now, Peter has just made it very clear. He says that God does not will for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. The desire of God is for the salvation of everybody. That's his heart, okay? That's why he sent Christ. John has just told us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Oh, but not for ours only who believe, but for the whole world, okay? Are you getting that? This is what the word of God says. Jesus said it, Peter says it, John says it. Paul also talks about it, okay? It's in the scriptures. And just think about this, okay? So let's, let's put this through the test. If God's will, his desire, that word will means it's his desire, his heart. He knows not everybody's going to follow him. He knows that. But Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world. Everybody's got a shot. So let's think about this. You have a firefighter who has all the gear, all the equipment, all the ability to save everybody that is in a three-story building that's on fire. And the firefighter comes out and he says, now, I don't want any of you to die. I don't want any of you to, uh, I want everybody to be saved and come through. Okay, and I've got everything here. I've brought it all, all right? And so here it is. That's my desire, and I can do it. Oh, but you know what? I'm only going to save you guys on the first floor. Why? Well, that's a mystery. And that's what Calvinists say. It's just a mystery. Then why do we have these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life? Okay, it's not a mystery. I'm a little animated about this because I've seen a lot of people torn up by this. Okay. But he says to the people on the second and third floor, you know what? I really want you to be saved. And I can, I've, I've given everything. I've got everything here to do it. And I don't want you to die. But you know what? I'm not going to save you. And as a matter of fact, I'm putting up confinement bars around everything so that you have no choice and no ability to get out of there. I really would like you to be saved, but I'm going to make it impossible for you to do so, to actually access the things that I have out here for you. Does that make sense? No. It doesn't. But people will say, God, okay, yeah, Jesus came. He gave his life. Yeah, that's what Peter says. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says. That's what John says. But really, God doesn't want to save everybody. God chooses to condemn people to hell. How does it fit the test? Okay. A lot of, for a long time, I thought, oh, we test things like Jehovah's Witnesses. We test the doctrine of Mormons. We test the health, wealth, and prosperity stuff. You know what? There are things that are ingrained in the church that are unbiblical that we need to test too. Okay? Test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. And then second, third John and Jude are all, hey gang, deceivers are in the house. There are those who want to rob you of what God has for you. They want to tear you down, tear you up, and rob you. 
Jesus talked about that. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Okay? That's his ambition. And false teachers and doctrines facilitate that. In this day and age, let us hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Test all things. Hold fast to that which is true. And live our lives in a way so that whether or not we die today or we see Christ in the clouds and we are raptured, we are ready to go home.